Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that uh, at any moment in time, you are doing so many things in your church across the globe um, that we can never see nor understand. But what this text brings to light for us is that oftentimes our understanding is the problem. Oftentimes we do not see what you're doing uh, because our sight is set on the things of the world. It's not set on the cross of Jesus. And so we pray as those who live between your first and second coming that you help us not only to understand you, but to understand who we are, where we are in your redemptive history and how we might endure today. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So one of my favorite commercials um, was a, a commercial that ESPN put out uh, about a decade ago, and it just featured a middle-aged, balding, white man named Michael Jordan. And the, the whole premise of the commercial was it just showed you uh, valet drivers and uh, receptionists and waiters and waitresses and delivery men showing their constant disappointment. <laughs> to where they thought Michael Jordan was going to show up. They instead just got Michael Jordan. And today's passage is one that I've longed to preach with all of you because it's been a profoundly helpful passage in my own life. And it's a passage where Jesus leans into our false expectations of who we think Jesus will look like and what we think a life of following him looks like, and he corrects it with the cross. And my guess is most of us have had similar experiences to that in a commercial. In fact, my wife um, once had a client come in and the name was that of a movie star. And she's like, it can't be, but is it? Do you think it is? It wasn't. Uh, Maybe you've had a time where you've expected one thing and you're pretty deflated when you find out that your hope was crushed. Perhaps it was optimism on a first date, thinking you nailed a job interview. But I imagine for some of us, we've had a similar experience even in our relationship to Jesus. You showed up to church, you said some prayers, hoping to find everything you wanted, and you found yourself disappointed. Maybe you've thought to yourself that, I thought life would be easier. I thought I would be tempted less. I thought I'd finally get the family I always wanted. When I realign my priorities and make Jesus first, don't I get the things that I thought I would get? Wouldn't life get easier? Wouldn't the depression go away? Or to use the question of the Pharisees this morning, wouldn't I get the kingdom? The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said something in a way that only a good German could. He says this, he says, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. You see, the question and the problem that Jesus is addressing today in the text that was just read for us is the question and problem of hope. What should we, what should you, what should our world expect in regards to Jesus and the kingdom of God? And why does it matter for our life today? He's going to help the Pharisees. And so us today, not by conforming our hope or conforming himself to our hopes, but actually by recalibrating and conforming our hopes to him. And in so doing, he's actually going to to reveal for us what is the truest hope and the most satisfying hope. 
What does Jesus want us to have? What hope does he want us to have in life? Well, he tells us in verse 33 in this paradoxical statement where he says this. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will keep it. Whoever wants to keep things will lose things and whoever loses things will keep things. It doesn't make sense to us, but it can make sense. It can make sense only if we understand the man who said it and the kingdom that he is revealing for us, not only in space-time history when Jesus walked in the gospels, but what he's doing today as he continues his work through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is our main point this morning. Our main point is this, is that the cross of Jesus sets the expectation for the Christian life. The cross of Jesus sets the expectation for the Christian life. And so first, we're going to see Jesus establish the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. So that's going to be the primary thing Jesus does first and foremost. He's going to locate hope. And then by showing us the nature of the cross, he's going to help us with our expectations in three ways. First, he's going to show us how the cross protects us from false hopes. Then he's going to show us how the cross warns us of coming judgment. And then lastly, we're going to see how the cross frees us to lose our lives. So one statement about where the kingdom of God is, and then three statements of expectation. And our text opens today, as was already read for us in verse 20, with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God will come. This was a question of immediate relevance to the Pharisees because what they thought about the kingdom of God could not be reconciled with the works and the message and the man, Jesus Christ. They seemed like oil and water. They seemed like two antithetical things, two opposite things. And Jesus is going to address this seeming opposition in his first point today where we see this. We see the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. Now, the kingdom of God, similar to righteousness, as Luke talks about it here, had a a keen awareness to the Jews that often is, you know, one layer removed from us. And for the Jews, the idea of the kingdom of God was the answer to all of their sorrows. It was what God promised when he went to Abraham and and promised by his merit and by his mercy to make them into a kingdom. And there would be kings and there would be peace and there would be flourishing. It would be everything they ever wanted. They would have power that ruled over the whole world. They would have peace with God and with one another. There'd be perfect shalom. But the last 700 years of history up until Luke chapter 17 showed the nation of Israel falling into greater and greater disrepair. Half of the kingdom fell in the year 720 AD or BC to the Assyrians. The other half was carried away into captivity out of the promised land to Babylon in the year 596. And in the remaining centuries from 596 to where we sit today, there had been some insurrection by uh, religious and military Jewish leaders over the time with whatever government was in power, but the best it ever accomplished were small massacres. The worst were large massacres. And now, though the Jews have been allowed back into the promised land, it is not their land. It's Rome's land. They sit under Roman rule, Roman influence, and Roman law. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, and John the Baptist even before him, saying that the Messiah of God has come, the one who is going to establish the kingdom of God, you can bet, like that Mater D seeing Michael Jordan is at his table that night, that the hope meter spiked, that at long last, 
everything was going to be made right again. But so far, Jesus has been even more disappointing than a middle-aged, balding, white man named Michael Jordan. (laughs) So far, he has looked completely opposite the hope they thought they needed. He spent most of his time amassing, or amassing fishermen and sick people, not warriors. He's leading tax collectors and sinners, not soldiers. And he spent most of his influence rebuking the self-righteous religious Jews and not Roman Gentiles. And so when the Pharisees come in verse 20 and they ask, when will the kingdom of God come? This is really not out of a place of serious inquiry. It's out of a place of frustration, They're in essence saying, tell us, Jesus, tell us when you're going to start solving things for real. Enough of this preaching the gospel of the kingdom, enough of this healing of those who are the outsiders. When are you going to do the real things? When are you get your hands dirty? When are you going to establish your kingdom? And when you tell us that, then maybe when we see that power, we'll follow you. And you see, this is not exclusive to first century Pharisees to approach Jesus like this. We often do this all the time. We'll say, it's actually uh, the story behind Martin Luther's conversion that God used for his glory. He was in a storm and he said, if I survive this, Lord, I will uh, become a monk. And sure enough, he did. But what you see if you follow Martin Luther's story, his monkery was no salvation until God grasped his heart by grace. And so we need help assessing our own expectations and ideas of what we get when we turn to Jesus? What does hope, what does the kingdom of God look like? And notice the Pharisees ask a question of when in verse 20, but Jesus continues not by answering the question of when, but the question of how. Do you see that? He says this, he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus' answer levies two challenges to the Pharisees. The first is he says, when it comes, you won't be able to observe it. You won't be able to see it. And then secondly, he tells them why. Because it's already here. It's already in your midst, and you're blind to it. You're not seeing the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, he explains himself more as he continues. And look at what he says as he turns to the disciple and talks about our longing for hope in verses 22 through 23. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out and follow them. Do you see what Jesus did there? It's really subtle, (laughs) But when we see it, it's helping us find the center of the kingdom of God, the center of the hope of God. Because what he actually did is he redefined the object of hope. He added greater clarity to it. Where the Pharisees asked about the kingdom of God, he turns in light of that to talk about the days of the Son of Man. What will the consolation for the disciples be when life is hard? When they are longing for the kingdom? What are they longing for? The days of the Son of Man. The kingdom that the Pharisees missed in their midst is the son of man who is Jesus, the hope of all Christians, who brings us hope in our own longing. Jesus is tying the kingdom of God to the days of the son of man, Christ himself. The kingdom in that day was in their midst. Why? Because Jesus was there. That's why there were miracles. Because the kingdom was unfolding. In the kingdom of God, 
Dead people rise. In the kingdom of God, lepers are healed. In the kingdom of God, blind men see, lame men walk. Sinners are saved by grace. The Christian hope is centered in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. There is no kingdom of God. There is no kingdom of peace. There is no shalom. There is no Christianity. There is no Christian hope apart from Jesus Christ. We all affirm that, right? We call those who go to church Christian. We call converts Christian. Seems that the root of that, even if you're not great at Latin, is Christ. (laughs) But how often do we dream our dreams and hope our hopes and plan our plans apart from Jesus Christ? But Jesus is saying our hope amidst everything that disappoints is nothing but Jesus. You see, the, uh, a pastor in Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barnhouse once showed us the danger of our expectations when he began to preach to his congregation what it would look like, not if the kingdom of God rolled into Philadelphia, but what if the kingdom of Satan rolled into Philadelphia? What would that look like if Satan took control over a city? And he said something like this. He said, all of the bars would be closed. All pornography and prostitution would be banished. All the streets would be clean and filled with happy and kind people. Children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. Smiles would be sweet. Churches would be full. And Christ would not be preached. In other words, the kingdom of Satan looks a lot like you getting everything you want. But no Christ on the throne. It looks like your perfect perception of the kingdom of God, but without Jesus. That's the danger of our hopes. We need to be careful what we are hoping for. And Jesus continues to lean into this problem of expectations in verses 24 and 25 where he says this, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so here Jesus introduces a tension that's gonna actually be carried, if you have your Bibles open, it's gonna be carried all the way through. We're gonna have this as the center through, the, uh, through chapter 18, verse 34. Everything's playing on this tension right now. And what is this tension? It is that the, king, the, the days of the Son of Man, the kingdom of God is both obvious but obscured. It's obvious because when it happens, you'll know, like lightning across the sky. I remember growing up as a kid and going to any firework display, and I would always ask my dad, is this the grand finale? Is this the grand finale? And my dad would always say, you'll know. (laughs) You'll know when it's the grand finale. And sure enough, every time, you knew. Why? Because like lightning across the sky, the whole horizon was lit up. We will not have to say to one another, look, it's over here. The whole creation will make it clear when Christ has returned. The prophet Daniel prophetically speaks of this day in chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where he says this. He says, there came one like a son of man who appeared. And he continues, he says this, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom will not be destroyed. 
when Jesus returns, when the Son of Man comes, and the wonderful weight of his coming is made obvious, no one will miss it. You won't have to whisper, you won't have to nudge, you won't have to explain. It will be cataclysmically clear because it is a kingdom that will consume everything. But that's then. But now, this hope is obscured. And what's it obscured by, obscured by in the text there? What do you see? It's obscured by suffering. The kingdom, we just read in Daniel, will not be destroyed. But at least as a matter of first time-wise, the king will be. There's a stark contrast between Daniel 7 and this unbreakable, undefeatable kingdom of the Son of Man and Jesus' words of a suffering and rejected Son of Man that couldn't be any clearer to the Jews. What they hoped for in the Son of Man's kingdom in Daniel 7 and what Jesus talks about would have been a stark, scandalous, and outrageous contradiction. The Son of Man didn't come to suffer. He didn't come to be rejected. He came to establish his eternal kingdom forever. But here, Jesus gives us decoder glasses for the whole of human history. How many of you grew up in the glory days of prizes inside of your cereal boxes? And they'd have those, those pictures on the back that kind of just look like white moo cow things. And then you, you get to the bottom and you put on the glasses and you'll see like there's, you know, the tiger getting you to buy more cereal there. And you could finally see it. Or if you've gone to an eye exam and you just see a bunch of little fuzzies and they keep progressively bringing you lenses until they're like, aha, I see it. I see what's there. Well, here Jesus gives us those glasses for all of human history, for the challenges in your life and for the center of the Bible itself. And what is that lens? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus' suffering and rejection that makes sense of those who wonder where the kingdom is. We can't understand Jesus apart from the cross. We can't understand the Son of Man, the course of the world, the hope of the Christian, or the expectation of the Christian life without the cross. The cross captures what is obvious and obscured. It captures what can't be seen merely by the eyes of flesh. The cross is wrapped in weakness, but robed in power. The cross reeks of death, but gushes in life. The cross pulls down darkness, but breaks open the light. The cross holds everything, because Christ holds everything. If our hope is only Jesus, if the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ and his immediate rule, then your expectations in life, lest you seek to be disappointed at every turn, needs to be conformed to look like Jesus. And here Jesus tells us what that looks like on this earth. Does it look like unending political power, rampant financial success, healthy families, and smiling Instagram pages? No. It looks like the power of the cross. Dear church, we must have our vision and our expectations adjusted to this. So in the remaining time here, let's do this together. Let's look at three ways in short that this correction, that seeing the kingdom of God is in Jesus Christ and that our expectation in this world is the cross, let's do this together. And so first, we see that the cross protects us from false hope. The cross protects us from false hope. 
You'll notice up through verse 25, Jesus has twice warned in similar ways, once to the Pharisees and to the disciples, that there will be people who say, look, there's the kingdom of God, run to it. Or here, here is the kingdom of God, come to it. And Jesus tells us this as if to say, it's probably not true. And then it goes for our own day that people will say a similar thing. Uh, I have a sister, I love her dearly, but anytime she tells me she liked a movie, I know I will not like it. In fact, there was a movie I wanted to see and I was talking to my wife about it and we were hanging out with my sister and she says, oh, I really want to see that. I'm like, well, dang it. Because <laughs> I know I won't like it. And here Jesus is making that same thing when the world says, look, here it is. Come to the kingdom. This is what it looks like. Believe that your sister just recommended a movie to you. <laughs> know that it's probably not true. And here's why. Because the kingdom of Christ is not obvious to our own eyes. It's obvious, but it's obscured. Martin Luther says that in this dilemma, all of us fall into one of two categories. We are all theologians. No one has no view of God. It's either a God of your own invention or a God of the Bible. And he says, in the midst of that, we either are theologians of glory, that's glory in a worldly sense, or we're theologians of the cross. And the distinction between the theologian and of the glory and a theologian of the cross was central to Luther's day. It's central in our own day and it's smack dab right here in the text that Jesus is giving us today. Luther says it this way. He says, the theologian of glory does not deserve to be called a theologian who claims to see into the invisible things of God by seeing through earthly things. But the theologian of the cross comprehends what is visible of God through suffering and the cross. I'll read that again. The theologian of glory does not deserve to be called a theologian who claims to see into the invisible things of God by seeing through earthly things. But the theologian of the cross comprehends what is visible of God through suffering and the cross. In other words, those of us who are theologians of glory, which all of us are at some point in time, we can only see the glory of God through things that look glorious in the world. We can only understand God as we understand things by the worldly perspective. So what does that look like? It's like, well, well where is the good life? Well, wherever we find the good life in this world, then there's the kingdom of God. And that's what we'll seek. If we want to enjoy God, we must get to that level of good life. Where in the world is power? Well, if it's political power or financial power, then once we get into political or financial power, then we found the kingdom of God. Where is comfort in the world? Well, there is the kingdom of God. Where in the world is peace? Well, there is the kingdom of God. Go there and you'll find the kingdom. But here's the problem with it. Not only is it out of line with what we'll see later about the cross, but it sets you up for disaster because this means that when we encounter weakness, we think that God is not at work. When we encounter difficulties, we think that God is displeased with us. When we labor in ways that lack visible and observable glory, we think God to be lackluster and our life to not matter in the scheme of God's glory. We only perceive the goodness, the greatness, and the goals of God through the goodness, the greatness, and the goals of this world. But this misses the cross, which is the power of God. The prophet Isaiah warned the Jewish people of this in Isaiah 31.1 where he says this. He says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many 
and in horsemen, because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Now, these were God's people. Their hope was still in God. They wanted the protection of God, but they went everywhere but God to find it. Why? Because God is invisible. But that chariot sure is visible. I can't touch God, but I can touch a spear. I can't measure God, but I can measure that warrior. And what do they say to themselves and to everyone around? Look, there it is. Let us run to Egypt if God is to save us. Let us enjoy her might if God is good. Brothers and sisters, if I may be frank with you, our world today is saying, look, here it is. This is the Christian hope. Run to it. Our politicians are saying, look, here it is. Here's the key to the endurance of the evangelical church. Our church leaders are saying, look, here it is. We have many members. Is this not the kingdom of God? But if what they are pointing to, if what your heart is taking comfort in is not the ignoble, offensive weakness of the cross, if what they are pointing to and what your heart finds comfort in is the power to make peace by worldly might, to console fears by the counsel of the many, and to call us away from weakness and reliance into the confidence and hope of horses and other, then let us not call that the kingdom of God. Instead, let us read James chapter 4, where he speaks of things that are selfish and powerful, and he calls them by a different adjective. You know what he calls it? Demonic. Such hopes have no place for the theologian of the cross. God does not need worldly power. You do not need worldly comfort. Let us not sacrifice the good news of the gospel for the gospel of this world, which is nothing. I want us to all take a chill pill. We live, let's, like, we all need to take a church history class. We all need to realize that what's going on here in America is unique to America. It's not unique to God's church. And what happens is we see this creeping liberalism in theology and in politics, or, or maybe even you're super liberal and you see this conservative creeping and everyone's scared about everything. And we say, if there's a hope, then the church needs to do this. Christ is not tied to the power of the church. The church is tied to the power of Christ. Do you realize what the Bible says about us? But we have this treasure, obvious, obscured in jars of clay. To show the surpassing power belongs not to God. Or throw rocks at me, do it now. <laughs> belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Dear Christian, do not forget that we are prone to bad eschatology. That means bad understanding of what the last things are. Many of us want to look like Jesus when he comes back. We think what the world needs to see is Christians with swords and horses executing judgment. But did you see what Paul said? Do you see what the world needs to see? The death of Christ in the Christian. This is not living like a lamb in a lion world. This is living like sons of the lamb in a world where he is king. Make sure your hope is in Jesus. If the weakness of Jesus is offensive to you, then his power is not for you. Because it is through the weakness of Jesus on the cross that our sins are dealt with and salvation accomplished. If we cannot see the power of the cross in weakness, then we will sinfully seek to find power in other things, which when Christ returns, will be shown to be truly powerless. And this is what we see next. The cross warns us of future judgment. The cross warns us of future judgment. When Jesus returns, it's not only going to be spectacular, but it will sweep away with it all of our objects of false hope and comfort. Jesus shows this in two case studies in verses 26 through 30, if you would read with me. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. If you're unfamiliar with the storyline of the Bible, that's all right. A lot of us are. And Jesus here is referencing two stories, that of Noah and that of Lot. And at their heart, these two stories reveal two things. It reveals God's judgment against sinners and his salvation of those who are saved by his covenant grace. But the focus of Jesus' teaching here is not on those who are saved as much as it is on those who are not saved. Here it is on those who did not seek salvation, those who did not care about coming judgment, those who swept up in a theology of glory thought they had all of the invisible things of God in the visible things of the world. Actually, when the angel came to Lot and called him to leave to flee Sodom for its destruction, he said, hey, is there anyone else you care about? Well, go and and tell them and have them escape with you. And so we see what happens in Genesis 19, verse 14. We read, Lot went out and said to his son-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place. I hope I'm going to be a good enough father when I have son-in-laws that I will want them to avoid this judgment. But right now, color me skeptical. said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. He warned, but they laughed. They were satisfied. Look at the city. Ain't nothing going to touch us. Noah built 
the boat, and you can imagine he looked like an absolute fool. What kind of HOA meeting might that have been back in the day? We all start poking around asking questions when our neighbors are building a shed, and here's Noah building an ark the size of three football fields, and a football field, I don't know, I'm bad at cubit math. Uh, anyway, what, what was probably true is these guys asked, and Noah shared. And they're like, oh, cool, 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 cool. And then they look for real estate listings further away from crazy Noah. <laughs> but sure enough, in the days of Lot and the days of Noah, judgment came. The rain came down, the flood rose, the fire fell, the smoke rose, and those who were preoccupied with observable things, with better things, with glorious things, were destroyed. So too, Jesus says, it will be when the Son of Man is revealed. Judgment will come, and there will be those who refuse to do anything to prepare for it, who are swept away. So what do we know about this day of the Lord, this day of judgment? Well, two things Jesus makes clear here that I think are helpful for us. First, he speaks of this day of the Son of Man in both a singular way, a day of the Son of Man. You'll see that in verse 24, verse 30 and 31. But then he also speaks it as a plural, the days of the Son of Man. Those are verse 22 and 26. And so what do you make of it? Is this day, is this moment a day or days? Well, it's both. It is a singular day. There will be a singular day when that observable, sky-splitting thing will happen. When the heavens will reveal the divine swell that stands back by the sovereignty of God. And just as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. That day will come. But also means that while we wait, as the disciples are waiting, that we are living, in a sense, these days. Peter affirms this in Acts chapter 2 when he quotes the prophet Joel and he says that we are in these last days. Just as there are people who live between Noah and the flood and Lot and the fire, we live between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And therein lies the problem, doesn't it? If I told you right now, Jesus is coming back, y'all would say, let's do this, let's repent. But if I say Jesus is coming back tomorrow, you even have to figure out, well, what am I going to do before then? Now extend that over millennia. We too, just like these individuals, have to eat and drink. We have to relate to one another. We have to live life in this manner, which means we must do this living carefully for our hope is at stake. And this is the second thing we learn about the day of the Lord is that we see in verse 31, it's called the day. And in verse 34, it's called a night. So is it a day or is it a night? Well, it's both. It's a day when all of the lights of the false hopes of the world are turned off. And the true and abiding hope of Jesus Christ is illuminated for all to see. That's why Jesus says this in verse 31. He says, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. We must remember while eating and drinking and marrying and living, we live in light of this day. When Jesus comes back, we don't turn back to the house to get what we think we need. We forsake it all and we run to Jesus. We don't grab our trinkets. We don't get our souvenirs. We cast aside the joys of the world as Paul does in Philippians and we count it all as rubbish, How often do we need to check our hopes? How many of us would first seek to turn back and get what we can only gain in Jesus? 
And this is where Jesus presses his primary point for us today in verses 32 through 33, where he says this, remember Lot's wife. So this whole text, do you realize this is the only imperative Jesus gives? Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. This is our final point this morning. The cross frees us to lose our life. Remember Lot's wife. That's the illusion he's making here. And if you're unfamiliar, in Genesis 19, we read of Lot's wife. And so Lot and his family are fleeing according to the promise of God. And God says, run, run away, and don't look back. But in Genesis 19.26, we read what happened. It says, but Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, what's going on here? Is it just that she looked back, and God's really severe about you know, what direction our head is pointing? And here's a great example of how Scripture helps us understand Scripture, because here in Luke 17, we get a greater understanding of what was actually at play, not in the head of Lot's wife, but in the heart of Lot's wife. Jesus tells us why she perished. Because she wanted to keep her old life and couldn't handle losing it. She didn't perish because her neck turned. She perished because her heart did. It was her desire, not her direction, that sealed her fate. Charles Spurgeon calls this look, he says it was her last love look. (laughs) That in that look, all of her love was displayed. When hope was on the line, she didn't want God's mercy. She wanted the world's glory. She wanted to keep her life on her own terms because she didn't believe that God was faithful to save and to satisfy. This is why Jesus makes this stunning proclamation in verse 33 where he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. The way of the cross, hope in the coming son of man, what does it look like? It looks like losing your life by worldly standards. It looks like foolishness to the theologian of glory. In fact, Paul says so in 1 Corinthians, where he says that gospel is foolishness to the world. It is foolishness unless we see that our biggest problem is sin, that we need not fear a flood of water nor fire of judgment. We need to fear God's wrath on account of our sin. But through Jesus, who is our greatest hope, he takes away our sins on the cross and brings us peace with God. If we don't understand that issue about our life, then the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die without any hope. Without hope in the next life and without all the glories this world holds up in this life which means that we should not only prepare our hearts to constantly preach the good news of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ to it daily, but we need to realize that we all need to help one another with that. It should shape how all of us help each other follow Jesus. If you look at these two examples that Jesus gives, he seems to be emphasizing two specific idols, one in the days of Noah and one in the days of Lot. And those are the two distinctions. One, marriage is emphasized and the other, labor is emphasized. So to put those in today's terms, we have sex and career. What is more satisfying than worshiping Jesus? Our sex life and our bank account. The University of Montana is about to start in a few weeks, and there are no greater idols on campus than those two. So when we begin to share the gospel with those students and support student leaders who are there, we must realize that in calling them to Christ, we are not calling them to something comfortable. We're not calling them to a step towards popularity on campus 
We're not calling them towards a step to higher leadership in their scholastic fear. We are calling them to what seems like the dumbest thing they could ever do. We're calling them away from everything the world holds up as satisfying. But it is our job to tell them that this is the way of the cross. It's your job to tell yourself this is the way of the cross, that now it looks dumb. Now it might look like and even smell like death, but when the lights go out, our hope shines. The gods of sex and money die in the grave, but we worship a God who came out of the grave. We will live alongside others. We will live with others. We will at times eat, get paid, and be married, and have babies, and buy houses along with others. But remember Lot's wife. Remember not the direction of your head, but the desires of your heart. We must not forget that our hope is not in what others hope in. Our hope is in the Son of Man himself. And when he comes, we run. We run to him. And this is why Jesus gives this sort of eerie parable at the end when he says this in verses 34 through 37. I tell you in that night, there will be two in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So what's Jesus's point here? Well, his, his primary point is that two people will live in this world in a seemingly similar way. They'll live in the same family. They'll sleep in the same bed. They'll go to work at the same job. But when Jesus comes back, the difference of hope is drastically clear. Remember Lot's wife. The world is divided by hope. It's divided by what we think saves us and our expectations of what that salvation looks like. Remember our good old friend, the constant optimist Nietzsche? Hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. We will all be judged on our hopes. All of us right now are constructing what we're going to do after this, what we're going to do this week, our goals for our life based on the expectations of hope. But hope in the cross is a scandal to the world. It looks like torment, but it's what saves. And here's the hope for you. This is not some great theological gaslighting where we call you to say that something is evil and it's really good. This is what Paul says in Romans 5.5. He says, our hope does not put us to shame. One day Jesus will come back, but right now in the midst of all that is hard and difficult, in the midst of sneers and jeers and trials from our own hearts and trials from the world, Jesus walks with us to display to us the scandalous power of the cross even in our lives. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, but he, that's Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your wonderful career. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your thriving family life. My grace is sufficient for you because you have a president who's protecting religious liberties. My grace is sufficient for you because you've checked all the boxes of tithing and fasting. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And here's the effect of it. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ will rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness. Wouldn't that be great? I'm content with insults. I'm content with hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
You see, apart from the gospel, we only see this world in black and white. If it's good, it's good, and if it's bad, it's bad. But the cross shows the world in living color. It opens up to us a spectrum unfathomable. It therefore refuses to call what the world calls good, the evil refuge of sin, it refuses to call that evil good. But then it also refuses to call the good sovereignty of God, which sometimes brings difficulties and hardships and puts us face to face with evil. It refuses to call that good grace evil. Instead, it trusts in the full spectrum of God laid out in the cross. The kingdom of God is in power, but it's also in weakness because the cross is power and weakness. The grace of God is in comfort, but it's also in the crucible. Why? Because the cross is both a crucible and it's a comfort. And he, we live this way, we believe this thing, we follow this Jesus so that we might rest. Where does Paul land it? In him, the true ark who saves us from the flood of judgment. The firstborn who came from heaven, not as fire to consume, but as a sacrifice to woo and to call us and to make propitiation for us and to walk with us through the spirit. And in such a crazy world, what ought we to do? Just one last concluding application. You need to learn to love the church. That might seem like the weirdest thing, but most applicable if you don't like pastors, right? Um, Of course, they want us to love the church. But in a world that only sees in black and white, we need the help of those who can see in color. We need those who help us align our hopes with the hidden hopes of the world. To remind us that what is visible in the world does not display to us the invisible God, but instead what is most visible about God is often revealed in that which the world seeks to hide in weakness, in suffering, in holiness, in death. And so when we gather together, we remind each other of that hope and we hold on until that day comes. We come in the local church and we live out the ideals of that kingdom. We call red, red, and green, green, and blue, blue. But we refuse to call what is evil good and what is good evil. We remind ourselves of the hope of the kingdom. We participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper as signs of the kingdom. We submit ourselves to the words of the kingdom and we worship the king of this kingdom. In this room is an embassy of a kingdom. This church is not the kingdom. I don't know if you thought that. If you did, this is probably your first time here. This is not the kingdom. But we are people of the kingdom. And it's our call to help one another endure until this day. This is a community that hopes together. It's a community that looks like the cross, and in this cross is our hope, our confidence, and our salvation. So let us together remember Lot's wife and look to the Son of Man as the answer and expectation for all of our days. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you open our eyes to see things that our fleshly hearts cannot. I ask that you help us to see the central hope of Jesus Christ so that we can understand everything in this life in relationship to him. That if we have Christ, then what the world sees as distasteful can reveal to us the wonderful command to taste and see that the Lord is good. That as this world takes from us things that we hold dear to our flesh, we can say that it is our joy to lose our life in order that we may keep it. When our world calls us to worship to bow down, and to follow, saying, look, there it is. We could say, no, because I've already seen it on the cross. I know what my king and his kingdom looks like in this life, and I will hold on to that so that one day I get everything we've ever hoped for, not apart from Christ, but in Christ.
Amen.